Good afternoon. Hello, everyone. Praise God. Great, great group today. You could turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4. And I talked about Ephesians 4 last time. But I feel to go over some of that again and then take us deeper into it. I felt led of the Lord to go back to Ephesians 4 and expound on that text more carefully to give more of a, of a, a background grid to where we're going. Ephesians 4 is a very pivotal passage of Scripture uh, for my thinking and I believe for what God is saying to us today. So I want to look at that carefully. And that's why I gave you such detailed notes this time. Uh, I wrote for you basically notes um, well, I just said it. I wrote notes for you. But that doesn't mean you can't or shouldn't add notes. I think you should because, of course, I'm going to say more than what's on there. You could read that at home. Um, so I'm going to read them but also go beyond them. I just wanted to leave you with something in your hands that you could go back over and <clears throat> you know, look at what you wrote to add in the margins or whatever at the end. So. That's why I gave those to you, because of the importance of Ephesians 4 to our thinking. So Ephesians chapter 4, and I would like to read for you the section I'll be expounding on, though there'll be certain verses I'll give more focus to than others, of course. But we want to read the whole passage. I think it would be good for us. So we'll start in verse 1. We'll go all the way to verse 16. We'll read this again, all right? You ready? Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, exhort you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the construction of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up 
in all aspects into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Now, to begin what I'm talking about here, I just want to remind you of this triangle that we've worked with in the past that kind of gives you a very simple and yet overall grid of the DNA that we're about. And it starts with the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. The church comes through the kingdom. To have authentic church is to focus on the sovereignty of Christ And all that the kingdom of heaven is about. So we've already taught on that, but this is the top of the triangle. We're defined by the kingdom. We're not defined by ourselves. We're not defined by a vision of church. The church is formed by the incarnation of the kingdom. And of course the kingdom is centered on the king, Jesus. And I'm saying that here because here in our passage, we read about the ascension of the king. It's Jesus taking that great throne of David against the background of the Old Testament and fulfilling the Messianic promises. Jesus is installed as king, bringing the kingdom of Yahweh back to his people. Right? So there we have kingdom. This ascension speaks of the kingdom. Now, one of the things that the kingdom produces over here on this point is family. The kingdom of heaven always creates family. Family, the people of God, the followers of the king that are created by the manifestation of his kingdom, the blood of his cross, the outpouring of his spirit, the transformation of our souls, that creates family. Internally, we are not just a group that gets together. The church is certainly not an institution. It's first and foremost a family. And one of the goals of Ephesians 4 here. The the product of the king's ascension is to create what Paul calls a body. People who are members of one body. They're joined together organically. They are members one of another. And they're bound in that great divine force called love. That's family. So the kingdom of heaven in expression is simultaneously family. And then on this end, my, my better word than last week, I had a list here, is mission. The kingdom of heaven is mission. It is always seeking to advance its rule and incorporate other souls. And the discipleship of nations, ending with the nation of Israel, including them now, but also the climactic moment in history. The kingdom is always, always family, and it's always, always mission. It's never one or the other. It's always both at the same time. So where we have kingdom... We don't have institution, we have family. Where we have kingdom, we don't have, hey, we're all gathering on Sunday, please come join us. No, we have mission. The kingdom seeks to advance because there's no end to the increase of his government or of peace. Amen? All right. So back to our text more specifically. And let's look at your notes here. We have two main points. And the first one is this, that the ascension... Described for us in Ephesians 4, the ascension is itself a call to God's people, to his unity. And that's in the first portion we're looking at here, verses 1 through 7. When Paul exhorts the Ephesians, 
right at the beginning of the chapter, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. That's Ephesians 4.1, right? Now, when he speaks of their calling, he's not just saying, hey, you're a Christian, live right. Though that's included, but that's not what he's saying. We want to hear Paul in context. The, the specific thing he's calling them to is, you are the redeemed people of God. That's what he spent three chapters establishing and spelling out for them. That God has done a marvelous supernatural work through the blood of his cross. It's more than redeeming the individual. It's creating new community. And he spelled that out for three chapters. We're going to summarize it ourselves. And it's on that basis that he says, therefore... I want every one of you to walk in a manner that is consistent with your calling. And then he specifies patience and tolerance and love in the context of Christ. In other words, everything about our calling in that passage has to do with the relationships we have with other people. So the ascension is a call to divine unity. That's what we're discussing first. And what I want to say in letter A, Paul begins his exhortation. This exhortation section of Ephesians with a call to community harmony. Now, in light of the larger picture, this is very important. It's beyond just the convenience of not having a conflict. It's that there not only is there power in real community, but it's the very thing that Christ created through his blood and the outpouring of his spirit. So Paul says, okay, look, in light of this this awesome cosmic redemption and this creation of community that I've described for you for three chapters. You guys in your local churches enter into real harmony in your relationships with one another. We'll see the significance of that as we go. So this section that begins in chapter 4, and it actually goes all the way through chapter 6, is a call to community harmony, and we must see this exhortation to be unified against the light or against the background in light of the content of chapters 1 through 3. Right? So what I do here in your notes, beginning in sub-point number 1, is I very briefly summarize the chapters that have gone so far because we want to hear Paul in context. When he speaks of peace in Ephesians, I'm sure that includes the serenity of your heart, but that's not the main meaning. The main meaning of peace in this context is we've overcome relational barriers that were put there by demonic forces. So when he says gospel of peace with the armor of God, he's not just talking about tranquility. He's talking about relationships. Because we read about it earlier, that he preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. What's he talking about? You Jews heard a message of peace. You Gentiles way out there heard a message of peace. He created peace. The nations that are naturally and supernaturally enemies previously in Christ become close friends, comrades, and brethren. And that is the, one of the most poignant and powerful expressions of the atonement of Jesus Christ. My conscience is clean. I'm, I'm forgiven of my sins. That's a powerful effect of the blood. But let me tell you what that looks like to other people. They see us enter into relationships that's beyond what can be done among sinful human beings. Even with their best efforts of unity. Religious unity is false. World 
world peace, united nations kind of unity. It is false. It is all superficial. The only real unity is in Jesus Christ. And that's one of the greatest testimonies to the power of his blood, his resurrection and his ascension. And this is what Paul is after in the first three chapters of Ephesians. And then he brings it home in the, in the latter three chapters. And he says, you cats, excuse me, you folks got to live this out on the ground in the spirit. So chapter one, Paul describes what I summarize as the glorious redemption. And you could go home and read these chapters against my little summary paragraphs if you want to. But to summarize the first 14 verses, there with my first bullet. Do you see that there? The dot. There it is. I ran, my outline doesn't go that far down with numbers to remind me not to hit, hit the tab too much and get too complicated. But what Paul discusses there, our, our redemption is adoption into a family. In which father shares his secrets with his children. He gives them his spirit and incorporates us into his grand plan of redemption. Our own redemption is more than our sins being forgiven. Though that is crucial and he mentions it in Ephesians chapter 1. It's one of the blessings of our redemption that we are forgiven of our sins. The redemption of our, our redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses, he says, by Jesus' blood. But it's more than that. He says that God in his wisdom shares the mystery with us that is the administration of the fullness of the times, the summing up of all things in Christ. In other words, what Paul says, when, he says we've been adopted through Jesus Christ to himself, to the Father. We, we've become his children. And as his children, we are brought into his counsel and made partners in his plan to redeem the universe. That's a decent job. That's nice employment. I submit to you, it is the meaning of life. No matter what your niche is, in front or behind the scenes, it does not matter. When you're fulfilling your role as a child of God, you are contributing, partnering with Him toward His overall plan of summing up all the cosmos in Christ. Colossians is the same kinds of theme, uses a different terminology here when it talks about this because Colossians and Ephesians are parallel in many ways. He says it's God's plan to reconcile all things in Christ. That means every enemy on the last day will actually get eliminated so that everything that exists is in harmony with with God through Christ and in harmony with one another. Everything is in immediate reference to Christ in the whole universe. The holy city, New Jerusalem, the earth you walk on, the nations, the kings of the nations, the heavens, the angels, the huge top of the city of the new Jerusalem way up there on this crystal sea and all the angels round about and the throne of God and all of the nature with the trees on the sides of the river and everything that we're going to be doing there. Everything will be filled with the spirit of Christ and in perfect harmony and love with God and with one another. And this fallen planet is the theater in which God is playing that whole drama out. And we're all players in it. It's part of your redemption. It's, it's, it's a part of being forgiven. You're adopted into family and a part of the wisdom of God to pull this thing to the end. In fact, it's part of his plan, not just to sum up uh, all things in Christ, but to use little people like me and you to do it. That's a part of his plan. 
It's a part of his, his divine boasting to the powers of the air that he would use people like you and me to do this thing. That's important. That's the one thing that made Jesus dance like a little child. I'm sure there were a lot of things, but the one thing we read about, okay, it doesn't say dance, but it says he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit. I'm sure it was childlike enough to make most of us uncomfortable. But that's the one thing where it says he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit, praising Father. He says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you would reveal these things, that you would not reveal these things to the wise and the intelligent, but that you would reveal them to babes. Jesus said, prophets and kings have longed to see the things that you see, and they did not. Because you've been directly incorporated into God's plan to redeem all things. And, and part of his boast and part of his wisdom to subvert the wisdom of this age is to use little children who are simple and innocent like us to do it. Praise God. Let's get me on Ephesians. I'll get preaching. Come on. Stick with your notes, Bobby. That's verses 1 through 14. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> That's a, that is a good word right there, though. I mean, th- th- we need to hear our Ephesians 4 passage in light of all this. The Ephesians 1 language just p- pulls all this off. He, say, he starts, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Forgiveness, oh yeah, that would be pretty good. But everything that he possibly has to give is what he gives us in the Spirit. Not just forgiveness. You have an inheritance. You have the secrets of God in your bosom. You stand on the counsel of God. You're, the, you're a testimony. You're a part of his overall redemptive plan. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Next bullet. The final verses of Ephesians 1, verses 15 through 23. That is Paul's prayer. Those are, what, is that nine verses of prayer that take up the latter half of chapter 1. Paul prays for divine understanding of and deep connection to God's eternal calling, wealth, and power on our behalf to join him in his plans. So he sets it forth in the first half of the chapter, first half roughly, a little more, and then he prays that we catch it in our spirit. You follow that? So first, he explains, he says, praise God for this glorious redemption. We're children and we're incorporated into his plan. Now, my dear saints of Asia Minor, I I want you to know that I'm praying for you, that God would open up the eyes of your deepest innermost being so that you'll catch these things and they wouldn't just be words on a page to you. Or they wouldn't just fall off you, as they say in the South, like water off a duck's back. But that, and you might even enjoy them in a meeting. Oh, but I pray that you catch them, that you see them and feel them to be true in your inner man. So that's where the apostle's mind goes. He's like, look, this is the way it is. Oh, now, God, I pray, open up their, the eyes of their heart that they might see the grandeur of this and not be tricked by the hostility of their circumstances. Or the perhaps momentary dullness of their lives. Perhaps they're they're going through a season where things don't seem to be clicking. God, open up their eyes so that this does not get lost on them. Not get lost on them, but Lord defines them. This prayer specifically asks, my notes go on to say, this prayer specifically asks for our understanding of the mystery of Christ's Ascension. 
connecting that event with the power that God gives us. Now, you read chapter 1. When you go home, if you want, you'll see what I'm talking about. When Paul prays that we would see the power, that's the third thing he prays for. The first is the, the hope of the calling, and then the wealth of the inheritance in the saints, and then the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. And he says, these are all in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which is the same thing he says in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Same phrase. Comes from Isaiah 40. It's a reference to the ascension. So all these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Listen, he says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And every name that's named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. And gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul prays that we would catch these things in particular reference to the ascension. Next sentence. What I just quoted for you, this conclusion, he concludes with a cascade of power language that describes the ultimate victory and supremacy of Christ over evil spirit rulers. That's important. When he says he's exalted far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, he's talking about invisible demonic governors in the heavens that Christ defeated and is now enthroned over. Right? So Paul opens up his listeners to the idea of these demonic hosts that are ruling nations. And says, Christ is Lord over them all through the ascension. And that victory, my last sentence in that paragraph, that victory over such powers leads Paul to speak of the church. That's an important connection I'd like for us to keep in mind. Then he moves to chapter 2, which I summarize with the word resurrection. And I don't mean that to be a a reference to Christ's resurrection. It includes that. But what I'm saying here is that Paul is now viewing in chapter 2 our salvation as, as our being risen from the dead. That we're saved means that we were dead, but now we're alive. And that's what Paul gets into at the beginning of chapter 2. So I summarize the whole thing, of the whole chapter there, in just one word. We are raised from the dead. Resurrection. This is also where he discusses grace. So my first bullet there, the first ten verses, I summarize this way. That grace means that God is merciful and that he recreates believers into a new creation. That's grace. Just tracking with Paul for a minute. Just tracking with Paul. Next sentence, we were dead, now we're alive. So Paul says flat out, you may have existed, but you were not alive before Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked. Death, right? If you're sinning, if you're sinning as a lifestyle, if you live under the rule of sin, 
You're dead. And we used to be that way. We may have breathed oxygen, but we were dead. Now, he relates death with being inspired by evil forces. So we were dead. We, we, we lived in sin according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. So again, it's to be dead means to be living under the rule of sin and under the rule of demonic forces. doesn't mean you don't exist. It means you live in a wrong kingdom. Or you exist in a wrong kingdom. Paul says to believers, grace means now you are alive. And this is not the result of our works. It's the result of his works. Say it again. This is not the result of our works, but it results in our good works, he says in this first part of chapter 2. We don't earn it by our works. God worked it and gave it to us. But when we get it, we become alive, which means we are now producers of good works in the kingdom. Amen? All right. So Paul's right there. We're tracking with him. Now he moves to the second half of chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Now watch this. And I say watch this because I have this line in italics, which makes it important. Isn't that right? Patrick's looking over there going, yeah, this is in italics. You know, I'm half italics. Oh, no, forget that. <laughs> Forgive me. I'll just blame Steve all on that. Some, some subconscious pun he probably put in my head. Okay, so we're raised from the dead as new creatures. Now the italicized sentence. This new divine resurrection life applies specifically to the creation of a new society. A new community that reconciles old enemies. When he hits verse 11, up to that point, we could just take it individually. When he hits verse 11, he, just, he says, now remember, you Gentiles, according to the flesh, who you used to be called uncircumcised by the so-called circumcised, you've been brought into a whole new family. And this is the work of redemption that God could actually not, not just forgive Gentiles, but plug them into the very same inheritance as Israel itself. Now, to us 21st century Americans, we think more gentilically, if you would, automatically. And it's like, okay, big whoop. So we're brought into the same inheritance as Israel. Israel was the center of, of the earth for God's work in the earth. Israel was the vehicle of God's revelation, and they were the recipients of all the promises. It is remarkable, even under the new covenant, which was given to Israel, not to the Gentiles, explicitly. When God announces a new covenant for Israel and Judah, it is absolutely remarkable that God would say, now all of you Gentiles who believe in the Messiah, you can be just as saved and experienced everything I plan to give them. In fact, it was, for, it was all for you through them to begin with, that you all might be joined. It's a, it's a remarkable feat, the creation of a new community. Gentiles must remember their old station and be thankful. God, by the blood of his son and the gift of his spirit, is the broker of a supernatural peace treaty between nations at enmity, especially Jews and everyone else. That was put a little bluntly. Remember, you are, you are at my desk right now. I did not carefully... 
uh, craft these words and go back through them very much, but I'm just trying to give you more to take home. It, it, it was Jews because they were God's people. Jesus told the Samaritan woman right on the cusp of announcing she's welcome in the family. But just to get things straight before we get there, salvation is of the Jews. You, you Samaritans, he says, you had a different version of things. Just on this level, y'all are wrong. We were the right ones. Now, we didn't steward it very well, but we're the ones chosen. But guess what? There's an hour coming. There's an hour coming. And now is. When all who worship the Father will worship him in spirit and truth. You don't have to become a Jew. You believe in Messiah and receive the spirit. You become a true worshiper with all the benefits. And for Paul, this is... It, it, it stuns him to paralysis. He had to get touched by God to be able to speak and write about these things. They're so awesome. Because he's not a Gentile who heard of this years later. He's a Jew who only thought in that dimension, as a zealot, no less. And then he gets this revelation, the treasure to all of them? These Gentiles who don't know their, their, their head from their tail? They don't know anything about God or hope or life or morality? All they have to do is believe in this Messiah. They need a little extra help becoming holy at first, real some serious training, but and, and announce this and plant churches, and they don't have to become circumcised. This is this was always your plan. Remarkable, one new man. Where I'm going with this when we get to the ascension, we are called to this. We are called to demonstrate the brilliance of this plan. Our unity cannot just be a a cutesy little church get-together. A few churches get together, though that's better than nothing. We have to have a supernatural unity that demonstrates the victory over supernatural evil forces by Jesus Christ. So Paul is continuing to set the stage for us. Israel is the national center of international salvation. The law will come from Zion. The Messiah came from Zion, etc., etc., But now, even the far-off Gentiles can join, quote, God's household through this revelation I'm speaking to you, which is carried by apostles and prophets, according to Paul at the end of Ephesians chapter 2. Apostles and prophets received this revelation at the beginning of the church's history, and they continue to carry it with a level of urgency that others can't naturally carry it with. There's an urgency and there's a gripping of it that this thing must be demonstrated. To this day, apostles and prophets still carry on this mystery. That's why they are the foundation of the church. You don't plan a church on, I got an idea, let's plan a church. Let's have a church. Let's, take care. let's make sure everybody's needs are taken care of. We, we want to do all that, but that's not the foundation. What's defining is God has done an, a, a, a work in Christ where he's defeated every foe in the universe. And he's brought a, a, a unity that's totally supernatural. Let's demonstrate this thing. Let's demonstrate the mystery of God's brilliance. It's more than you can be saved and have a ticket to heaven. You've been brought into something, a plan that's bigger than you, and a people that's bigger than you. And our everyday lives should seek to demonstrate this in some way, which is what Paul tells them in Ephesians 4. How about a little tolerance? There's only one Lord. Release that person. I don't, I don't care how unjust it seems. Forgive them. Tolerate them. We're talking about demonstrating cosmic realities, not your petty little selfishness. Think big, 
Live your life big in the small things. Why are we going to bind all these demons over our city up here and we can't even deal relationally with one another down here? That's where the battle is. If we could do this, we'd probably get rid of most of our spiritual warfare. Because the demons are interested in dividing people and in wrong leadership. You know, bind me all you want with all your warfare and this in the gates and that in the gates. That's all fine with him. But if we get the leadership right, we get the kingdom right. And if we get our relationships right, it's like, boom, you just released something. You've just covered most of your binding this and loosing that stuff. Now we can start praying. Let the kingdom come. Pray effectively and strategically according to the leading of the spirit. Come on now. Does this make sense what I'm saying? Much of our spiritual warfare, praying, at least in the, in, the, in, the, in the popular charismatic sense, I'm not saying you shouldn't pray warfare prayers. When you're led, you're a child of God. Do what you're told. But much of what's popular, shallow, superficial, whatever, can simply be substituted by the church. Being the church. These powers are overcome by our unity. I mean supernatural unity, not our little cheapo, let's be friends through compromise. No, preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So that doesn't mean I have fellowship with anything that moves. But in the spirit, we're being called to a unity that reflects what Christ has done in the heavens and on the earth. You see where I'm going with this, why I'm slowly moving back toward the ascension? I want to paint the picture as best I can in light of Paul's writings of what happened out there when Christ died. And when he was buried, he went down. And then God raised him from the dead, and he's alive. And Mary went to grab him, and and he said, stop clinging to me. I haven't ascended yet. It's not enough I'm alive from the dead that I can make you you happy disciples at a church service. I need to ascend and create church. Because the physical church on the ground is what demonstrates among the nations the victory that Christ won and sealed when he ascended on high. Not just got raised from the dead, but ascended. And when we get that thing right, the Gentiles will be full, will release Revival in Israel, and then we'll see the sky split. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But it's the fullness of the Gentiles that will have that kind of impact on Israel. And that revival in Israel will be resurrection for the whole world from the dead, meaning the end day. This is what we're gearing toward. So when I, I, like, I want to do all the stuff practically that church means or have other people help me do it. All that in itself agitates me if we're not talking frankly about this and putting ourselves in the larger scheme of things. And I'm not just some theoretician out there always trying to wax theological. This is in our Bibles. I'm summarizing what's in Ephesians. I'm probably going beyond summarizing now. but These are the things, these are the truths that should animate our relationships. Chapter 3, I summarize as stewardship, because Paul then talks about himself and his role in this whole plan. Now, note what I say there under the first bullet. Paul begins to pray. Chapter 3 begins where Paul starts to pray. 
he actually starts a prayer or telling them he's about to pray and interrupts himself so that he can fill them in more and make the recording of his prayer more meaningful for them when he finally gets to it later. So Paul begins to pray for more revelation, prompting him now to define his own role more specifically. This is Ephesians 3. Again, if you read my paragraphs and then read Ephesians first few chapters, you'll put it together better because I'm not reading the verses right now. I only read from chapter 4. Okay. So this gives this definition, uh, defining of himself, it gives Paul more clout as an anointed and sent minister to whom these churches should listen about these life-defining mysteries. Paul's saying, he's not boasting, he's saying, look, I've been chosen to carry these mysteries. I've grasped things that the church needs, that apostles and prophets grasp on a different level, not more than other people, but usually first, because it's God's will to use them to dispel them among the hearts of God's people. That's why Paul says, I'm writing, I'm writing, I'm writing, and then I'm praying and praying that you'll get it. Does that make sense? So also his defining of his role settles their souls about his imprisonment because surely there were close friends among these churches who were discouraged that Paul was in prison and they were sad and they were grieving. But he says... Don't grieve over my imprisonment. It's your glory. This is all God's stewardship. I'm just stewarding the mysteries. If I'm in prison, I'll do my thing from there. And it's because of what I've given you. The cat is out of the back. So if I'm in jail, it's too late. The word got out. The dove is flying through the nations. Paul lives, ministers, and suffers for them, he says. He's a steward of the mystery. In Ephesians 3, he defines the mystery. He identifies several mysteries throughout his writings. Two of them are in Ephesians, the first of which is here in chapter 3. And that mystery, they're underlined in your notes, colon, defining the mystery after the colon, is that God's eternal will was and is for believing Gentiles to be incorporated fully into Israel's inheritance through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've already talked about that and preached on it, but that's the mystery, that's the secret revealed, that when Messiah came, his treasures would be announced to every nation, and they all could be incorporated. All those who believed, even Gentiles, could be incorporated into Israel's inheritance. And then Paul's urgency is that that supernatural unity, that extraordinary new thing that God is doing, is demonstrated even in the smallest of local house churches. Yes, even Gentiles become full members of Christ's body through faith. Thus the church becomes the living demonstration of God's wisdom. Because she's the one who incorporates all these people who never could have blended together before. But they blend now. His eternal purpose is to reunite the human race in his son. You say all humans, even if they're not saved? No, in his son. Listen, let me just pause and say this before my next bullet. God created human beings individually. With remarkable potential. 
we have awesome potential. I mean, you, you could see highly skilled, talented, and then trained athletes, people with you know, amazing genius. Just I know it's all in the context of this world, but human beings have far more potential than even we have realized. And all the more when we enter into unity. So when a fallen race, disconnected from God, decided that they would set their minds to build a tower as a unifying symbol to release their potential, God had to break them up and disunite them. Because he said nothing would be impossible for them. Now he doesn't mean they'd be able to overtake me and my kingdom. He's speaking within the context of their realm. But he said, yet if I let them go, disconnected from me, they would be able to do whatever they wanted. So I have to stop them for their own good because that would never last. But they would accomplish it in their name, not mine. It would be a deception, but they'd be able to do it. So there was a disunity and their, their languages were broken up. Well, it's, it's no coincidence that at Pentecost, they all spoke in languages they didn't know and were heard by people whose languages they wouldn't have otherwise been able to speak. Because that disunity that God himself had to promote in the past is pure and good in Christ. God created unity among peoples that would otherwise be completely disunited. I've told before the story of the Palestinian man who some friends of ours met in Israel. He was a cab driver. And he was taking one of them to the airport and she, you know, one of, one of the gals on a missions trip or a visit to Israel. And she was witnessing to him and his heart began to melt, but she had to get to her plane. So she sent that cab driver back to her friend who was coming to another flight later. I think I have this right. And I think was able to call her and say, this Palestinian man, he's English speaking. He is primed to receive Jesus finish him off. This lady, this dear lady that finished him off is a good friend of ours. We wound up meeting this man. She goes, uh, he goes and picks her up. She leads him to the Lord. Now he was not involved in terrorism, but he knew terrorists well, and he was involved in criminal activity in Israel, in their territories, but he got saved. She went home because she had to catch her flight after leading him to the Lord and discipled him over the phone. And his Arab-speaking wife, she could not speak English. He would tra- the, he, the man would translate over the phone, hearing what our friend would say, and led his wife to the Lord and discipled her through our friend, through the translation from English to Arabic. Beautifully saved family. We took her to Israel later and met these people. This was not a made-up story. These were beautiful people who were anti-Christ by uh, natural orientation and very anti-Jewish. We sat with them in King David Hotel lobby as Orthodox people would walk by and curse and spit because we were talking to Palestinians. there. They, they tried to get the whole family there, but they wouldn't let the teenage son pass the border because he was a teenager. They, they trusted a little better the older people. So we sat with this man and this dear woman. You, you were there with us, right? The woman, her, her uh, tears running down her face as she spoke with our friend. And, and they just loved on one another. And these were, these were 
These were believers in Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Soft-hearted believers. And now, haters of Israel turn to lovers of Israel. Because they're God's people and the people of the Messiah that saved them. So they did a complete about-face. So much so that this man who owned a tract of land on the Mount of Olives sold it to a Jew. Because it was Jewish property before the Lord, he felt. So he sold it to a Jew. And it got him killed. He was martyred. It was actually in national news. This Palestinian man was killed by his own kinsman because he sold a piece of land back to Jews because he felt it was their territory. And he was killed by his own people because of his faith in Messiah. Because he was so deeply touched by Messiah. A supernatural division... Supernatural between natural Arabs and natural Jews. Supernatural division was broken down in Christ. There was a uniting that actually got the man killed. He died for his faith because it was expressed in a unity that is otherwise absolutely impossible. That's powerful. This is what God has done. North and South Ireland can be friends. You know, South Africa and these things. And things can be done in the meantime, even by natural humans. And whatever can be done is an intelligent thing to work for a certain kind of unity and equality. But the real deal can't be done except in Jesus Christ and in the kingdom of God. And the church must demonstrate that. There's the old song um, from the 90s that came out of England, Be Still and Know. How many of you have ever heard that song? The the last verse starts with, um, um, Be still and know that I am God. My son has asked me for the nations of the world. His sprinkled blood will make a way for all the multitudes of India and Africa to come. The Middle East will find its peace through Jesus Christ, my son. From London down to Cape Town, from L.A. to Beijing, my son will reign the undisputed king. Kingdom means family. If this is what God has done, then we should receive the exhortation to live in harmony. Next bullet, Paul prays for divine strength to envelop their inner man. There refers to all us Christians, specifically his churches in Asia Minor. That's represented by the city Ephesus. Okay, that that divine strength would envelop their inner person so that this supernatural unity that we're speaking of can be achieved among them through the indwelling Christ. That is the fullness of God. When he closes that prayer, which there you have more praying at the end of Ephesians 3. He closes it and he says, so that you can be filled up to all the fullness of God. He's not talking about so that you as an individual would experience his fullness. Though individually we want to be full of the Spirit. We want to have personal encounters in private. That's wonderful. That's not what Paul means there. Paul says, you want to experience the fullness of God, which is encapsulated in the fullness of Jesus Christ's victory? You want that fullness? The, the extensive victory to all these corners of the universe, then find the treasures in one another and unify and harmonize in the Holy Ghost and you will be the fullness of God. This is why it's important to me to try to fulfill what Christ achieved on the cross, in his resurrection, and at the ascension and not just have church as usual. 
not just conform to a program. I don't care about any forms of organizing and doing stuff in a good way. That's all fine. We, have, we need good administration. But we can't be defined there. We have to be defined by the king and the work of victory in the spirit. And even if we were sloppy, but we found victory in relationships in a deep and powerful way. I mean, through the spirit, we would overcome every problem we had because of bad organization. And I don't want bad organization. God's a good organizer. He's, there's an order even to something organic like the human body. You don't see bones sticking out of heads and elbows in the wrong place and all this. There's a beautiful organization. There's a beautiful system that's part and parcel to real life and what is organic. But our bones are not what's on the outside. They're on the inside. Everything's in the order. The structure is beneath, but the whole thing is alive. And what, where we, if hypothetically we were deficient in organization, but we were efficient in the things of the Spirit and in our relationships with one another and our commitment to what God has done in Christ for community, we would change the world in weeks. Or at least our city. So he closes chapter 3. We move to letter B, which is the beginning of chapter 4. That portion of my notes represents chapter 4. So now, in light of this great mystery, which is something I just primed, right? This, in light of this great mystery, the local churches of Asia Minor must manifest the unity that's already been granted them in the Spirit. They must exhibit the character traits of Christ for relational harmony in God's family. And that's why Paul lists all these unities in number one there in the first six verses, and then he speaks of the diversity that each one has a gift in verse 7. He says, first of all, all, I exhort you, submit to one another, promote love, and get along. Don't let anything block your relationships. He's not talking about like if someone is in stubborn sin and you have to remove them. That's another way of preserving unity. We're talking about things within the context of the Spirit. We should not let anything petty divide us. There should be a harmony there that demonstrates this great victory. That's what Paul says. Then he goes back to some theology. He started getting practical, and, and then he went back into the spiritual. Not that the spiritual is not practical, but the way he was talking. He says, "For this, there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. Everything's unified, even though there's several things that are unified. There's one Lord. There's not just the, the tongue-speaking Lord and the Bible-believing Lord. There's one Lord, and all these kingdom truths should be integrated under his lordship. I would submit to you that that the divisions caused by denominational distinctives are inspired by the evil powers of the air. That doesn't mean that I look to lock arms with everything that moves or anyone that calls himself or herself a Christian. That's not the point. I do not like superficial, what they call ecumenism, the ecumenical movement that is superficial. But within the king, or actually what I'd like to say is, as far as believing in apostles and being filled with the spirit and believing the Bible, everybody should believe these things. There's only one Lord. Let's get over it and come into what is kingdom rather than just what's belonging to this denomination. Well, we believe in the fill of the spirit. Well, we're, we believe in the fill of the spirit. We're a little more laid back. We use the Bible. We go through the Bible. Well, we, you know, we, we, we only emphasize the Bible. Well, we believe in raising hands. But now it's like, why don't we just all come and believe the Bible and live under the the lordship of a king, 
instead of having all these distinctives, that's like, well, what we believe is if you don't speak in tongues first, you're not, you can't join our group, though we'll recognize you as a Christian if you are. And then here you have to believe more in the Calvinism. And it's like, well, these things are all important, but I don't know why we don't all submit to what the scriptures actually teach because there's only one Lord. And we should exhibit his unity. So I'm not going to compromise truth for the sake of unity, but I'm going to pray that truth creates unity. And we all get defined by what is apostolic and kingdom and Christ rather than our particular denomination or the name of our church. Unity can be a tricky thing to speak about. But Paul gives a list of unities. But then he says, but each one has their own gift. Because you don't have unity without diversity. There's no such thing as unity unless there's differences. Or else there would be uniformity. But uniformity does not display the grandeur of God's wisdom. There's got to be differences blended together. That's, that's the work of God. You know, a, a, a very good, though very specific example is what our, our grads testify to at graduation. Don't you think, Bethany? When, and I remember this too. Gina was asking me about it. You know, Sean, our class speaker, for those of you that weren't there um, at the graduation, he testified that when this class came together three years ago, they had trouble relating to one another and their relationships didn't click. And I remember you, I remember you getting up at one of our breaking bagels times, I think it was, after one semester. And I think it was this kind of exhortation you were exhorting us to, Bethany. I remember others talking about relational differences and it was difficult for them to get along and they had to battle through these things. When other classes came, they blended together so easily and beautifully and naturally. But these guys apparently had some struggles doing that. But by the time they graduated, they were the closest-knit class we've ever had. Because relationships are worth contending for in the spirit. They don't come. See, you can't get unity easily because of the diversity. But only the diversity allows us to overcome the things that create disunity so that in our diversity we find one another, complement one another, and become unified. All under the lordship of Christ and the truth in the spirit. Amen. Those of you who are married or you're on your way to being married, you have found out that on some level or another, opposites attract. In certain things, you had a lot of common. In another thing, it's like you, the, it's, the diversity is what creates the unity. That's what's at issue today, the first day that New York married gay people. They're now the largest state. What's at issue there is not just the moral demise of our nation, but the image of God in his creation. And they use the word diversity, but that's what the very thing they don't have. Homosexual means same sex. That's uniformity. That's not diversity. You can't have unity that way. That's why you can't make a family that way. It doesn't have to do what you feel like and what you have rights for. It has to do with God's design. And God designed diversity for the sake of unity. It's the very image of God that's at stake. God himself is one because he is diverse. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says there's only one, but there's one Lord, and there's one Spirit, and there's one God and Father. 
Even in their unity, there's diversity, because without it, there can't be unity. Forgive my speaking in circles, but I think you get the point. You live it every day. How many, of, uh, you know, how many times do we go out and say, look at that tree? And someone says, well, the leaves are beautiful. No, don't look at the leaves. Look at the tree. Well, it's the tree, is the branches, the leaves, the trunk, the bark. It, it all combines to make one. It's all over creation. Unity comes through diversity. Shoo. Well, now I'm going to start preaching. I'm going to start teaching now. I'm just kidding. So then in number two in your notes. Oh, yeah, see, scared some away. It's all right. I'm just kidding. For those of you listening only on the web, people did not leave when I said that. Number two, we speak of the ascension. We already read the passage beginning in verse 8. He ascended on high. Right after Paul speaks of diversity in verse 7, he goes to the ascension. So number two in your notes, I'm I'm discussing the ascension's power to blend that diversity into unity, constructing the church as God's temple slash Christ's body, because Paul mixes the metaphors. He uses construction language that builds a building from the temple imagery of chapter 2. But what are you constructing, which is construction imagery? You construct a body because he mixes the metaphor when he speaks of the church because it's both. We're all living stones that incorporate the house in which God dwells, and yet we're a body with all these different functions that attach to the head and manifest Christ in the world. So first he quotes Psalm 68 when it says, He ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, he gave gifts to men. So Psalm, the quotation of Psalm 68 assumes or expresses the following two things. Let me just take a breath. You guys look like you're getting tired. It looks like you're getting worn out and hot. Just kidding, that would be me. You guys doing okay? Good. I'm going to take a few more minutes. All right, so Paul's quotation of Psalm 68, he ascended on high. It assumes or expresses two things. These are things that I touched on last time, but I'm going to take them, I'm going to hit them out of the park this time and then take us deeper, okay? And it probably would be good to read that verse again, okay? When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Two things are assumed or expressed there. First, The powers of the air are spiritual beings in the heavenly spheres with governing powers on the earth since the fall. And I give you a list of passages from Old and New Testament that speak of these evil powers that are spiritual beings that rule the world through earthly chiefs and princes and presidents and kings, etc. That the two are parallel. I give you Psalm 2 that's more of an allusion to the kings of the earth. But the reason why I gave you Psalm 2 is because there's Yahweh speaking. Okay, Yahweh is speaking to all these powers in the heavens and then kings on the earth. So powers, forgive this, just lines, but there's kings on the earth and powers in the heavens. A little crown there, etc., etc., brilliant, isn't it? I'm going to do some prophetic art on these days. <laughs> Yahweh speaks to all the, the levels of powers in the heavens and on the earth. And he says, I've installed my king on Mount Zion, my holy mountain. So you judges, you are free, you are free will beings. 
And most of you, you judges and kings, you don't have relationship with me. But you better, he gives them a warning. He says, be warned, kiss the son, do homage to the son. That is the Davidic king. Do homage to him because you're all going to have to account for him and make account to him in the way you're ruling my earth. I'm letting you do what you want to do. And then when things get, you know, too, I get the right kind of prayers or things get too terrible, you know, I'll, I'll intervene. But you guys can rule the way you want to rule. But you better do it in righteousness or you will have an account to me. So then Psalm 82, it actually says that Yahweh takes his stand in the congregation of the gods. Depending on how you translate the Hebrew word Elohim. It can refer to mighty ones, and that is a good translation. It's, it's not referring to literal gods. We are, we are monotheists. But the, the angelic beings in the skies are so powerful that the nations without the Lord Yahweh recognize them as gods. And sometimes the scriptures accommodate their language, not literally giving them glory as gods. There's only one God. But this, this word Elohim, champions, or mighty ones, he says, yeah, and even Jesus said, you don't like me being called God? The scripture says from Psalm 82, you are called gods. He's called you gods. The word is sometimes used to refer to these powerful beings and the parallel earthly rulers who rule the world. And God says he stands up in the congregation. It's as if he's rebuking them. Because the image, which is consistent in the other verses, a couple of the other verses, I gave you, well, I didn't give you Revelation 4 and 5, but also Job 1 through 3, 2 Chronicles 18, that has a parallel in the Kings, where God is sitting on his throne, surrounded by his courtiers, spirit beings that come and give him reports and give him counsel in a sense, and he gives them counsel. Who will go and cite Ahab for me to go up to Ramoth Gilead and and be judged and destroyed there. And one spirit comes forth and says, I'll go be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophet. God was in court. The courts were in session. Daniel chapter 7. The Ancient of Days comes and takes his seat. He's surrounded by myriads of angels and these other th- beings on thrones. The court sat and the books were open. This is the picture of Yahweh uh, sitting on the throne, surrounded by these, these different spirit beings that have different areas of jurisdiction on the earth. We get a more graphic and explicit picture in Revelation 4. There's 24 human elders on this court. There's four living beings. They're they're angelic in some sense, but that's not the best name for them. They're living beings. They're these odd-looking creatures. And there's angelic beings, and they're on the courts of Yahweh. Evil spirits came on those courts sometimes because they had jurisdiction in certain areas through the fall. So Satan actually appeared with the sons of God in Job. And he had a place because of the fall. Though he wasn't friends with God and God was still God. Where have you been? Satan couldn't speak until he was spoken to. Going to and fro on the earth. I'm roaming. I'm looking for someone to devour or something. Well, have you considered Job? You can't overcome us, man. And then God takes him up on this contest. Now that gets too far into something else. We can't get into all that. But the point is, these angelic beings would come into court with Yahweh. Yahweh says in Psalm 2, I've installed my king on Mount Zion. Now here's the human God, man. He's king again. 
And you satanic beings do not have governing power the way you did before. You still have your life extended in your authority, but now we have something more powerful operating at the same time as you. Here's where we're getting to where I'm going. In Psalm 82, Yahweh takes his stand in the court. He actually stands up, which seems to imply rebuke to all these these different beings. And he says, you better take care of the widows and the orphans. I've called you gods, but you'll die like men. I'll judge you. This is the cosmic picture. We, We find out in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 6, Ephesians 2, all of Ephesians, that Jesus Christ has ascended above them all. We now have a man, again, at the highest place next to God. That's what's been restored. He's the head of all things to the church, the extension of this divine rule from up here. This quotation of Psalm 68 is assuming this, not exactly that picture, but this conceptual picture I'm trying to paint for you. Psalm 68 is including that excuse me, assuming that, because it, it, it refers to when a, a king would go into battle against the nation. The king would defeat that nation in the ancient Near East. If, when the king defeated that nation, the wealth of that nation, including some of the people, would be taken captive to the victory nation. And the king who received those gifts would then distribute them, if he was a benevolent king, would distribute them to empower and and bestow more wealth upon his own people, which is the kind of king that Jesus is. I've gone into, Jesus is saying, I've gone into these spheres of powers when I was down here. I went right into their throat, into their belly, into death. I won the battle. I came up, up, and up like like a big firework rocket. You know how they shoot up? You see them going up there, and then plum. There's that slow motion, soft delay of the huge explosion of the firework. Boom! And all the little stars go everywhere. That's what Jesus did. He went up like one rocket and then exploded with all this wealth and just showered his people with this wealth so that they can be his people. Our little Hopi a couple of years ago was at a big fireworks show. We were all there, but she was there laying on the ground, just stiff watching all this. And, and she said later, I just imagined those fireworks as God showering me with his goodness. And I thought, that's a good illustration of this, because Jesus went up with this victory, and having gone up with the ascension, he gave gifts, showering us with his goodness that make us the church. These powers, my next sentence in my first number one paragraph, they replaced Adam as Yahweh's chief governor, or Governors, because humankind is plural, over the earth. But at the ascension, Jesus, son of David, second Adam, son of God, conquered these forces and gave Yahweh's dominion back to redeemed humanity, having coursed through life, death, the grave, Hades, and the heavens to the top of God's heavenly Zion. He is king as both Yahweh and Adam. Now, the second assumption expression in the ascension, number two there, the powers of the air held captive the mystery of the church. These evil powers do a lot of bad things. 
They inspire drug running, organized crime that run nations, human trafficking, abuse, abuse of authority, dictatorship, world wars, all these terrible things. Some natural disasters, they inspire all kinds of trouble. But one of the worst things they do, one of the most powerful things they did do, is they somehow kept captive the mystery of the church. Because the authorities of the five ministries, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, those five precious gifts were held captive because these are Christ-like authorities. They're held captive by these dark authorities. The resurrection may make a disciple, but the ascension overcomes these powers to liberate these prisoners. If a person's born again over here, praise God, their soul is saved. But if they will get in line, so to speak, with the ascension, you may have an evangelist released who will not only reach a massive amount of people, but equip the church to become evangelistic. And that can happen through just man-made church. That's the kind of operating principle these powers are specifically working against. So they say, even if people are getting born again and you're making disciples, we can live with that. But we can't live if that firework explodes and you release five gifts on the people of the church on the ground, making them the church. And not just a Christian organization, but the church, the body of Christ. I submit to you that only these five ministries, the authentic five ministries, only they can equip the body to be the body to where they're not doing the work. We're doing the work and they're giving us the tools to do it. And what is the it? We are being the body of Christ in the work of service. The ascension accomplished this because that's where Christ overcame these powers to release these five to build this body. Come on now. That's why he told Mary, don't hold on to me. I have to make the ascension. You might enjoy experiencing my salvation on the ground with me raised from the dead. But when I go up there, you all will be released in full fivefold expression to be the actual body of Christ. So number two, the, the powers of the air held captive, the mystery of the church. The church, as the extension of Messiah's rule, was the treasure of God's wisdom hidden and imprisoned by the powers of the air because they were the authorities that took over for Adam. And for Adam to be a redeemed humankind now in Christ, they needed the input of these five because those five are the expression of the ascended Lord. Without that ascension, the powers of the air have all the authority in religion. And they still do in Christian religion. Where the five aren't authentic and operating on the ground, equipping the body. Where the body is not genuinely becoming the body, by being equipped by the five ministries, they're still living under the powers of the air. So you see why I teach these things. Because I'm going for something that's beyond a certain style. I'm trying to manifest the kingdom through the people. Not through the leadership. The leaders equip, and then we all, that's a new southern term, wall, wall, become the church. Perhaps, you know, the y'all has to turn to wall. We all, we all, 
Only we're going to be able to say that, but we'll help others. So the, the church is the extension of Messiah's rule. You see the way, by the way, you see how this works? Forgive me now, there's a bunch of black marks. This will only be spatial from now on. Okay, here's, let's say here's the authentic church now. Because they were equipped by the fivefold, you see how there's now an even stream from what's on the ground to the top of Mount Zion. This, here's where the kingdom is. How is it manifested? Well, through fivefold equipping, but it's this church that's truly the body. Not just an organization, not an institution, but a body operating in love. That is what manifests the top of Mount Zion on the earth. That's why I said before, you got all these powers you're battling over cities. You're going to have spiritual warfare programs. We're not willing to enter into this flow, but we're going to pray against demons. And I don't mean resisting devils that attack you or casting something out of somebody. All Christians can do that. But you're talking about having kingdom sway in a whole city. And you're going to go praying at the four corners and bind this and bind that when you don't have this in order. There's all kinds of conflict, gossip, and unforgiveness. And you're going to go bind this and bind that? The kingdom is manifest through authentic church equipped by the fivefold. Once you do that, you've probably just got rid of most of your spiritual warfare needs. Doesn't Paul say in the rest, check this out, in the rest, I didn't give you a summary of the rest of the book because I was only going up to that chapter 4. Read beyond my lesson tonight in chapter 4 beginning in verse 17. He starts saying, hey, you know, um, get along, stop sinning, don't be angry, don't let the sun go down on your anger, and don't give the devil a place. It's all the groundwork of relationships that make or break our re- dominion over the powers of the air. Then in that kind of unity, you pray spirit-led, phew, sky's the limit, it's all over. It's all over. The secret is in the church. I'm telling you. And I'm, I'm after that jewel that comes through the kingdom. Not just trying to get church, but the church that comes from the kingdom. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom. Everything else will be added. Okay, a few more minutes. <clears throat> now that Christ, this is my third sentence yeah, in sub point two. Now that Christ overcame these evil forces and plundered their prisoners and treasures, he released a certain people as certain kinds of leaders. The five ministries. To equip believers to be the church, the body of Jesus Christ. It is not enough that people come to Christ as those saved, sanctified, and discipled. They must come into the lives and services of, I'm saying, the believers must enter into the lives and services of the five ministries in order to become the church. It is not as relevant what the name is on the outside or if you call yourself church. I'm not saying you're not. I'm not saying this is not a church and that's not a church. I'm only saying it's not relevant what you call yourself. It's relevant what you actually is. What is the verb of being? Are you in fact the church operating as a body? Then you have the kingdom on the earth. But you could have everything broken up but conforming to a completely different image. 
and not equipped by the fivefold, maybe two or three here and there, which is fine. It's good. There's still grace. God is good. We pray. We lead people to the Lord. All kinds of wonderful things happen when we have the Holy Spirit, even if you're totally out of order. But I'm not going for what we could get away with. I'm going for the fullness. That's the point here. The point is not to say everything else is illegitimate. Frankly, everything else that truly has the Holy Spirit, anyone else, any organization, they have the Spirit. They're doing good works. They're doing good works. They're relevant. They're legitimate. Who in the world are we to judge? It's going to take us years if we even try to do this anyway. We might as well be humble. The lower we go, the faster we'll go. We're not judging anybody else. Thank God for every good thing God is doing. In the highest, most liturgical churches, if Christ is truly proclaimed, if it happens, and someone's touched by the Lord, praise God. We're not the judges. But we're not going for what we can get away with. We're going for the fullness Letter B, we read on in verses 9 through 10, when he descended, he ascended. So now to comment on that, the ascension assumes and expresses the true nature of kingdom victory and achievement. Humility, service, and self-sacrifice always destroys darkness. When it says, what does it mean that he ascended, but that he descended? Do you see the way Christ ascended on high? He went as low as he could possibly go. That's the way he went up. He went down. How do you go up? You always go down to get up. You never go up to get up. You always go down. There's a teacher that once walked the earth that taught these things. He says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's the pattern of kingdom. You never... You never gain power by trying to gain power. You always gain power by relinquishing your rights, going low, and serving. And then this, this little thing happens when God puts his hand on you and raises you up. And you don't have to do it yourself. Your efforts are to go down. His efforts bring you up. And Christ said, that's my secret. I went down as low as I could go. I was a king. They treated me like a criminal. Like an animal. They tacked me to wood. It was shameful. No bathroom break. Cannot swat the flies away. Humiliating, shameful, painful torture. Mockery without any defense. You know, I could call 12 legions of angels. But this is your hour. I'm not going to do it. How low can you go? The humility, humiliation of going down into the earth being crucified a criminal. Father, I'm trusting you to make something out of this. I don't mean that he was expressing doubt. He was expressing faith. Father, into your hands. I did my part. I laid it out there. I'm not, even before he was dead, he was dead, guys. What reputation does he have left? Stripped of almost, probably, almost every piece of clothing. Looking like a traitor to the Roman Empire. Rejected by every possible people group at the time, even his best friends ran away. I'm complete. I'm dead now. I'm dead. I'm gone. I'm going as low as I can go. I'm now. I'm putting my spirit in your hands. I'm trusting you to make something out of this. Well, Philippians two. Therefore, God highly exalted him. And see, now it's God acting, and God bestowed on him the name that is above every name. That is always the way of the kingdom. To get up, you've got to go down. You never climb stairs in the kingdom. 
Always jump into a pit of some kind. Now, don't take that too far. You know what I mean. Always go to the place of service. The days of overpowering evil in the church must come to an end. Now, follow me through. Don't take me out of context. Don't hit pause on the thing you're listening to online. We must underpower them in order to overthrow them. And there we get overthrow again. Of course we're overthrowing the powers of darkness. Of course with confidence we pray and rebuke the devil. But that's rooted in a life that's walking with a cross. Amen? There's a little preaching there, but it's still the background pattern of, of here, as you can see so clearly on my whiteboard. Number one, the descent of Ephesians 4.9 is the lowering and incarnation and service and humiliation and sacrificial death and burial of Christ down the throat and into the belly of death and darkness. Amen. Jesus conquered from the inside out, not from the outside in. He went in as a victim so he could be at the deepest, darkest place and the ultimate position of darkness's power. And there he won the battle. He pulled that dragon out from the inside out, from the belly all the way out. Thus he conquers by serving. And his serving was doing God's will in the spirit, not just random service. He destroyed death by dying. Number two, the ascent, therefore... To God's heavenly mountain is the completion, crowning achievement, and fruit of the victory through his death. Filling all things means, negatively, that every black hole of sin and death in the universe is now invaded and conquered by Christ Jesus. And positively, the light and substance of his victory has colored in all the lines of the universe with that same victory. Negatively, he conquered what was wrong. And positively, he filled what was good. He filled his goodness in the universe. He filled all things, it says. I lost the metaphor. But you get the idea. The specific result in Ephesians 4.11 is the five gift people. They become the church's alternative to evil spirit princes who empowered worldly rulers to lead in the style of the Gentiles, according to Luke 22, 24 through 27. The Gentiles' rulers lord it over them, but not so with you. The greatest will be the servant. Wherever we have any government of lording it over, it is the powers of the air inspiring. Jesus does not lord under over, he lords under And he is the Lord. And yes, there's a day of reckoning when we all stand before the Lord. But he would achieve everything by going low, not by dominating. Not dominating carnally. Do you understand the difference? So the alternative is the five ministries. How do five ministries govern? By pastoring churches? No, by serving. They equip people. Do they carry authority? Did Paul have to rebuke people at times? Of course. That's when certain things were being violated. When it, if he had a strong, healthy church, and they said, look, Paul, we had to eliminate this man from the community because he was in an incestuous relationship. We, we had to judge him both in the spirit. And then he's like, well, that's what I trained you to do. Yeah, amen. You don't need me. Well, that's why he said, why do I have to do this? Isn't there one man there who can do this? I'm blending chapters 5 and 6 of 1 Corinthians. But you get the idea. We didn't just say, okay, here's what we're going to do, here's what we're going to do, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. No, when they were getting started, he taught them how to live. He entrusted certain leadership to leaders. But the whole point was to empower a family to be the thing themselves organically. 
To try to build or maintain church without these five ministries is still to live under the powers of darkness. Yeah, I said it. Only these five ministries can equip the saints in such a way to construct and unify the body in a way, okay, this is redundant, in a way that's actually connected to and expressing the head, Jesus Christ. Only these five ministries constitute that form of leadership that reflects the king of the kingdom. Denominational government divides the body while trying to maintain unity along the lines of its own distinct doctrines rather than apostolic truth. Doesn't mean they're all wrong. Some of them might have most of their doctrine right. But if that becomes their distinction rather than establishing something alive through truth, then it's still a form of division. I'm not saying we compromise truth, but it's truth making something alive. Not truth distinguishing me. Not doctrinal truth distinguishing me from you. I believe in baptism this way. You believe. It's like, well, you know, just the spirit behind that is just so completely carnal. It's under the powers of the air. In Colossians, it's called the elemental spirits. It may be worth debating. You may irritate me with your silly views of something. I may hold to my view, you hold to your view. And if they're crucial, then we might have to part ways. But I do believe in the Spirit having victory through the truth. And that takes work and effort and patience, the avoidance of which creates denominations. It's not that they're always wrong, it's just that it's a cop-out. Denominational government divides the body while trying to maintain unity along the lines of its own distinct doctrines rather than apostolic truth. I read that. Further, it empowers leaders to hold political positions of power without necessarily their having the calling, spiritual empowerment, maturity, track record, and temperament to hold such an office. So that it's the office leading us, not the person. Well, it is the person. Yeah, but it's the person with the office. Now, if it's a person leading who's empowered, recognized by the spirit and people, they have the touch of God, they've been broken, they have meekness. Well, then they can lead and they're going to need to lead. There's going to be times they'll even direct traffic. But you're being led by someone with a sweet spirit who's only looking out for our best to empower us to do it without him or her. Rather than just being led by an office that's established whether there's a person in it or not. Man, that's dangerous. It's called a straw man. Churches have created straw men, fake things that are there but aren't supposed to be there. All the people are gone, but there's still a 501c3 and there's still a building, so there's still a church. We have to fill it. It's like, what are you thinking? We need a pastor. Our pastor stepped down. Okay, we got to come up with a different way of doing this. Now, we work with what we have. Not every time that happens that's evil because we have to work with what we have. But again, we're not going toward what we can get away with. We're going toward the best. Leadership is not just an office that's empty to be filled. It's people designed and empowered by the Spirit. Real spiritual leadership must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Paul speaks of the deacons that way. They have a grip of the mystery of this thing. And their conscience is clear. Ah, now there's a qualifier for someone scripture calls a minister. Can I discuss quickly a thumbnail definition of each of the five ministries? Their functions more than their offices. Their ministries more than their positions. Their people more than anything else. These kinds of leaders are people that have it inside of them. Even Paul, with his calling as apostle, 
He wasn't, he wasn't called to apostolic work until he had gained some momentum in the Lord and in character for some years. Then in Antioch, he was called after teaching and prophesying for a season. And that after a season of evangelizing and just being before the Lord. So yes, these things can be called and then they emerge later. But once they emerge, you cannot divorce this function of service and leadership from the person, from, from the person himself. It, it's, it's who they are. An evangelist, is, it's not a, a title they have. They're constantly, they're constantly caring about the lost and thinking about how they're going to, 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 to preach the gospel and share. Pastors are constantly just people, people caring and nurturing, unless they're more of the teaching kind. Sometimes the teachers are just specified, and they just, they're always thinking of the biblical truth and principles and how to unfold it for people. They'll talk out loud by themselves in their room to articulate the truths. This is what you showed me. I've got to instruct people. Yes, that can be done superficially, that they have to be tempered by the Lord. But once they're tempered by the Lord, it's just a part of who they are. It's a natural inclination. Paul says, the love of Christ compels me. I'm completely owned by him on a level, on a level that is just between me and the Lord. And I've got to go and I've got to preach and I've got to plant and I've got to father people. And prophets, they not just have the burden of the Lord when they're giving an oracle, but they have, they have this, this inclination as people to bring foundational character and authenticity to the people of God to keep the main thing the main thing all the time. Number one, apostles. All of these are equal in value, but they are not equal in order. 1 Corinthians 12, 28. First, God's appointed in the church apostles. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. The rest don't get numbers. There's, there's something of an order, but they're all kind of categorized together. But, but first, second, and third does not mean they're unequal in value. They're all valuable. You can't have a church with, planted just by apostles and then it's not carried on by people of strength. They're, they're all equal in value, but they're, they're unequal in order. Apostles are first. You don't build with a roof and go down. Suspend the roof, put the framing in, slip in a foundation. I've seen that happen twice in my life. Where the foundation was wrongly laid and had to be relayed, it is a disaster. And cost at least three times the price of the structure. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Apostles are sent out from the Lord to establish churches and or spheres of ministry through the proclamation of the kingdom in word and lifestyle. These ministers balance the mysteries of the gospel with the wisdom to draw blueprints and begin spiritual families. See, they don't just carry the mysteries. A prophet can just carry the mysteries and proclaim them. But apostles will have the mysteries. The mysteries, like we read in Ephesians 3, Ephesians 5, the church and in marriage and the resurrection and Israel and all these mysteries that are fundamental to the faith. Apostles will carry those to some degree, like Paul would carry them more than others. But to some degree they'd carry those, but they would balance them and hold them in tension with the wisdom to build a local house. 
prophets don't always need that wisdom to build a local house because they're more of a mouthpiece and an embodiment. They're, they're not going to try to put people together. They're just going to speak into the foundations and, and usually wreck things. But some, they'll also build things. But the apostle will always be carry the mystery with a prophetic revelation, but then have the wisdom to start to build an atmosphere where people can flourish and the thinking get built according to heavenly blueprints. Does that make sense? And, and mind you, you know, Paul's a high standard even among apostles. So, you know, there were the different roles. You know, there was James, Peter to Israel. And Peter spoke with a lot of wisdom. But Paul carries most of the epistles in the New Testament. James was local a lot in Jerusalem. He's called an apostle in Galatians. So even, you know, there's even variety among the gifts, but there's certain things that characterize them. These are, of course, foundational people. Foundational ministry is that of the apostle. Ideally, they testify. This is the highest form of their call. They testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and uh, Lord Jesus' resurrection. Sorry, I didn't delete enough, so you can scratch out the apostrophe and the resurrection. I repeated it. Sorry. Ideally, they testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus with miraculous power. They equip others to order and maintain authentic community. They're often itinerant. They travel, usually. Number two, prophets embody and proclaim the mysteries of the gospel to help found churches on the purity of God's word while always insisting that the ultimate issues of the gospel remain the ultimate issues, the main thing. They initiate or call the church back to its original purity and keep it there with current words, scratch the S, current words from the Lord. And they demonstrate it in their lifestyle. This is not the gift of prophecy. This is a prophet. They equip others to carry their crosses and to prophesy along these same fundamental lines. We can all share in the ministry of a prophet, though we may not be a prophet. We should benefit from their ministry. And they are often itinerant. They often travel. Number three, evangelists embody and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ with great power. Both power referring to spiritual influence to move people's hearts and to miracles, outward signs of miraculous power. These evangelists equip others to preach the gospel and to win souls. So they do it, and they equip others to do it, and they often are itinerant. Shepherds, I don't use the word pastor. I'm going to throw a little, just a little twist in there so we hear it a little differently. The word pastor means shepherd. In the Greek, the word means shepherd. So let's use a different word so that we don't just see like the head CEO of a church because it's not the role of a pastor. A pastor may be one of the lead elders in a local congregation. He may even be prominent if he's older and has a bigger track record. It's not a reign so that there's always one pastor. There were elders, just like in ancient Israel, there were elders at the gates, right? So shepherds embody and give nurturing and protection to God's sheep, his people, through teaching and care and prayer, no rhyme intended, healing, counsel, encouragement, exhortation. They care, they nurture, they heal. They equip others to do the same for one another. You may be the most unpastoral person in the room. You're very much more of a teacher by the book, you know, or, you know, maybe you're a prophet and you don't write, care about people that much. You only care about their offense, but you can't, you know, it's like sitting and hearing your troubles. I can't handle it. But you know what? A pastor will at least keep you closer to some kind of pastoral flame where it's like, you know what? You need a little bit more of that. We're not asking you to leave your past, your prophetic role. If you're more prophetic, but you need a little bit of the pastoral mixed in on you. Let me rub off on you, a pastor would say, so to speak. Doesn't mean he changes us into a pastor, a shepherd, but it may mean we have to incorporate more of his gift set. 
so that people aren't always offended by us when we get prophetic. Sometimes it's necessary, but sometimes it's not. You know, a, a prophetic person who's imperfect, and usually we're not perfect, there's times you offend people necessarily, but there's times you offend them unnecessarily. And, and then the prophetic people can often think they're just like second to God. Well, I felt it. It must be true. And it's like, well, sometimes, but you need some edges rubbed off by some pastoral people and such. So that's the kind of thing. So shepherds equip others to do some shepherding. And they can itinerate, but they often overlap with the local elders to care for local churches. And I give you two passages where the verb for shepherding is applied to the local elders or overseers. And then number five, teachers are people who are closely associated with and often overlap with shepherds, but they can also be distinct. They feed the sheep the apostolic teaching. They help to maintain the apostolic identity of local congregations by teaching them to apply God's word to every area of life. They boldly take the mantle of teaching without fear, but with great care, because teachers are held to stricter evaluation. They, they, though closely associated with shepherds, their concern for the sheep may not always be as broad as that of the shepherd but will be narrower by focusing on the practical knowledge of God and his ways. Let me quickly at least go through letter D. These five ministries have as their goal to equip the saints of the, for the work of service. I want to introduce you a little bit to this word, to equip. I'm almost done. Number one, to equip can mean to prepare. The Greek word for equip can in different contexts mean to prepare or to mend or heal. You know, when Paul says, if anyone's caught in a trespass in Galatians 6, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Same word is here. Same root word. So to equip the saints doesn't just mean giving them practical tools. It includes making them whole people, which is really the goal of apostolic teaching. It's part of the way we're equipped. Someone who knows the tools of how to evangelize, yet are filled with all kinds of, I mean, deep issues of unforgiveness. They'd be better equipped releasing all this pain and bitterness and sin and freewheeling the evangelism. <laughs> now, if they had both, that's great. But if you had to choose, I'd go for wholeness over some of the practical knowledge. So anyway, um, mending or healing can be this word to rebuild. That word can mean or to outfit or to make ready, to literally to equip. To equip is a good translation, but the word is very dynamic. And I think it includes this idea of making whole because of what I say next. The larger issue is not practical tools for ministry, though that's included, but the development of people into Christ's real image. And you look at those two verses later, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Paul's goal is to make people complete in Christ. The goal, another way of saying it, love with a pure conscience and a sincere faith. That's the goal of our instruction. When people are so full of God, they're selfless. They're, they have agape as their main mark. Then the practical tools, then the practical tools become vital. And the work of service refers back to those good works mentioned in Ephesians 2.10 that reflect God's wisdom. You can read the rest on your own. Let me close by saying one thing to tie this all together. Because I didn't get to discuss it formally in your notes, but I preached it from the hip so um, fervently at the beginning that it's all there. 
the equipped saints construct the body. That's by adding from the outside and building within. The goal of a built body is not numbers. So we're going to get numbers. But that's not the way we think. Of course they're going to happen. We're not going to have fewer, fewer people as we build good people. More will come. How can you stop life, right? But the goal is, is a kind of unity that displays the victory of Christ over the evil forces that inspire sinful division. I'm not saying division is the ultimate sin. Sin is sin. But one of the great marks of sin in our world is the total divisiveness of the human race. That's why God hates bloodshed so much. And it's what our world is constantly dealing with and having no clue of how to deal with it. The church has to be the alternative of blending beautifully and deeply Jews and Gentiles and people of all kinds of diversity, whether it be their race, their personality, their social status, their gift set. The church should be the one built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone that displays God's wisdom to overthrow these powers and bring about a supernatural unity to God be the glory. Amen. And I forgot to mention something at the beginning, so we are done, but let me give you one last announcement. For the next two weeks, next two weeks, we are meeting here. We're having our meetings. I will not be here to teach because I don't feel like, I mean, because you know, I'll be traveling to Italy. My wife and I are taking a missions trip to Italy. We teach a church, uh, church group there. And please pray for us, but we're still having meetings. So it, it's important that you guys, especially if you feel connected, and um, you feel like either God has called you to join what we're doing or he might be, I would really encourage you to come because our team members are going to do things in a little bit of a different format, kind of like a big home group, uh, just to get a feel for the way we've been doing that. Though a couple of them will bring a teaching, a briefer teaching, so there's two of them, but then there'll be discussion with our other team members and all you guys and some prayer as God leads. So it'll be a totally different feel, but I think a necessary one, now that we're at our halfway point, we get more of a feel for what we'll actually be doing in the churches, because this ain't it. What I'm doing here, I think, is an important component. But it's only a component. The actual life is going to be lived in family units and in mission. So let's get a little taste of it over the next two weeks, because then after I come back and give some more instruction, we're going to download it all into the house churches and praying for the strength of the Lord to lead those things and then develop from there. That's the plan. So we encourage you to come. We really appreciate your support for our babysitters and our building, renting.